Hi, and welcome to GradCast. We're your official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students. I am your host, Gregory Robinson. And I'm your co-host today, Ariel Frame. Today we have a guest from the kinesiology department. We're really glad to have him on the show, Justin Smith. Welcome on the show. Thank you, guys. Happy to be here. Justin, tell us what exactly do you do? Awesome. So in our lab, the Joint Biomechanics Lab, we're studying the effect of subconcussive impacts in football players. My study specifically is examining youth football players. So a lot of the research is focused on college or adults, but statistically most of the participants in football are young kids, right? Because that's where everyone can play. You don't have to be an elite athlete. So we're just examining like the head impacts they receive and how it affects their brain function throughout the season. No way. So you hear a lot about concussions, mm-hmm. but you're talking about sub-concussive impacts. Absolutely. So what exactly is a sub-concussive impact? So a good way to think of it is any impact that doesn't cause a concussion, and that can be a direct impact to the head or an impact to the body that causes the head to move around. Okay, so I used to play football. Yes. And when I played football, my father got me a brand new top-of-the-line helmet. Awesome. And so the idea was that it would protect me even if I had a hit, unless it was a really bad hit, Yeah. I would be okay. Are you saying even with that helmet and it wasn't a very bad hit, I could potentially have damage so to my brain. Fortunately, the thing with helmets, they're really good at preventing skull fractures, and that's actually why they were initially designed. A hard plastic is really good at deterring the incoming blow to your head, but you can't, I guess, absorb all of the force in the helmet. So some of that's still going to get to your head, and okay. it can still cause injury. Obviously, a good helmet is a good way to make sure you're as safe as you could be, yeah. but it's not a invincibility so even at these young age, these youths, they can get into collisions. They're not going to be as bad as you see in the NFL, but it could still have damage then, you're saying? Absolutely. Potentially Absolutely. down the road. Yeah, especially yeah. long-term, right? Everyone's now in the media with the movie Concussion and all the yeah. documentaries that are coming out. It's Obviously, concussions suck when you get them, but people are starting to understand 20, 30, 40 years down the road, that concussion and or four or five or even just the head impacts you got when you were playing football in your youth can actually catch up to you, which is scary. So what exactly encouraged you to go into this line of research? So I've been a football fan and player for since I was maybe seven, I think was my first year of football. And I played all the way up 17 seasons, had numerous concussions. You're coming home, popping five Advil to just do your homework kind of thing. And it's scary now, I guess, to see where that can lead you. So getting into the research was my way of saying, I don't want to deter you from playing football to a young kid who's thinking about getting into it. I don't want to scare you, but what I want to do is make sure you know what you're getting into. Because unfortunately, for the longest time, people really didn't know. I guess I guess that was kind of uh, where my question was going to go. Um, with all this hype around, oh, um, con- concussions and or you know football could be damaging and these movies that are sort of glorifying the main character showing the you know big big football yeah. is is uh shutting down the work and 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 the little guy is you know these these underdog stories where the underdog is the person saying football is actually really bad for you yeah <laughs> and that's the moral <laughs> of the story um yeah. so yeah I mean, there must be some middle grounds somehow um but are people more deterred to play football now are there far less people playing football I would think so, for sure. The interesting thing to me is when you get these guys that are at the pinnacle of their sport, like NFL athletes saying, I'm not letting my kid play. These people that have gone through it all, they're playing at the high level that say, I'm doing this, so my kid never has to. 
Whoa. and you see that coming through like even just anecdotally looking at london and looking at the scale of london football it's definitely decreasing for participation okay. all the way up hmm. i guess uh yeah so we'll get into what you're like exactly studying but these are just such pertinent interesting questions yeah one thing i had in mind was i mean it's not like these games don't have rule changes so there can be ways to change the game a little bit Agreed. to like change how it's played i mean i know there have been people who i think i've seen a news article i'm really not uh the least informed about football he's sitting in this room right now but um i'd seen somewhere an article saying oh we want to try and implement like the what's that thing where they they have something behind them and you can like pull it out a or flag. touch your flag like flag football yeah, flag yeah. football make it more popular yeah. so that they can people can get used to seeing the sport played in a way that's less uh contact mm-hmm. um well, in your in your opinion, like what kind of changes would there be to the rules, and would that actually be a good way of going about it? So I think introducing flag football as an alternative could be awesome for those kids that really like the sport and really enjoy it, but don't want the contact aspect. I don't necessarily think that'll take over the spot that football has in our society in Canada, let alone what it is in the U.S. Right? It's the biggest deal it's like our <laughs> hockey almost <laughs> yeah it's but huge. rule changes that have already happened um for those that know football they know that special teams plays you see the kickoff at the start of the game and the punts and stuff when players can run 40 yards down the field picking up full speed and just collide those are when you see some of the highest impacts so what they've done is they've changed rules to try and minimize those hits so making it less likely that you're going to have those huge 40-yard runs at another player. And then, you know, there's one thing to be said about, like, it's a phenomena, and there's so much, like, commerce surrounding it, so we can't take it away too much because, you know, you got to give what the people want. But who's watching kids' football? Not that many people. Agreed. Maybe take it easy on the Agreed. kids. Agreed. So are those rules even more enforced? What happens at that kickoff thing, 40-yard run with the kids? Interesting point. I think that in a lot of youth football, I've seen some actually, they don't do kickoffs. They kind of just start it. Um, Interestingly, like they're not booting the ball as effectively. So the way the (laughs) rules work now is when, you know, you do the kickoff, they moved it 10 yards forward. So now they're more going through the field to play out the end zone and stuff like that. Kids still aren't really kicking that far to get it out the end zone anyway. So even if you were to apply the moving the ball up 10, 15 yards, it'd still not really be. I think many people, they just, they start off with like, it's like a touchback essentially. And they start it off at like the 30 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I've seen that a few times. I think I have too. Yeah. But in the NFL, they've changed a lot of the rules, specifically within the last like five, 10 years. Absolutely. And you see there's a lot less major hits. There still is some hits. Yeah. But do you still see, if you were to watch a game, do you still see a bunch of sub-concussive hits? Every single play. Every single play? Particularly the linemen. Yeah. For those that don't know football, it's those big burly guys that start one yard apart and try and move each other out of the way. They're hitting their head every play. And fundamentally how football is played, the hard part is you can't change that yeah. without dramatically mm. changing the entire mm. game, right? Yeah. Well, I guess I, I guess then then it falls on the shoulders of people like you to really show how impactful actually is this. Let's not have like a major scare until we know like quantify the harm. And if it's like unavoidable based on the way the play, the game is played and very, very severe, then maybe we really gotta rethink this whole football thing. But if it's in some ways avoidable and not as bad as people think, then the game can be played but with caveats, right? 
Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the biggest things is understanding that those hits are dangerous. The research is there showing it. Even if you're not getting blown up in a concussion, you know, you could have potentially long-term or short-term effects. The biggest thing that I was happy to see is the limiting of hitting in practices. You can't necessarily change the game, right? That's how it's played. I don't know how they would get rid of blocking in football. That's just then you're not even playing football anymore. But what you can do is reduce the exposures in practice. And the NFL has reduced it. I think they're only allowed, I forget the exact number, but maybe one contact practice per week. And even then, I don't even think it's one. And college is doing the same thing in the States. Wow. I did not know that's that low. Yeah. Yeah. Last I thought I heard was, this was maybe a while back, but I thought it was like they would give two days off like prior to the game <laughs> yeah yeah no, that's a huge difference yeah it is yeah and it's good when the pro leagues are doing that right yeah because it's a trickle-down effect whatever the best players are wearing the kids want to wear whatever the best leagues are doing you know the minor leagues that want to show we're a competitive program they're going to pick up kind of the same practice styles that the yeah. professionals are playing with so what exactly has your results shown have you seen that there is a huge impact in terms of brain cognition? So our particular study was an awesome result. As a researcher, you want to find something. But in this case, we were really happy to show that the season of impacts that our players uh, were exposed to didn't actually cause executive functioning impairments. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as grad students, you know, when you get a study that kind of comes back with uh, a null result, you're not exactly excited. It's less exciting to talk about. But in this case, when it's someone's health and something like this, we are really happy to see that. Is that to say that, you know, playing football is perfectly safe? No, there's research out there that shows the impacts that are of similar magnitudes can cause harm. Even studies done with the varsity team at Western here have shown that impacts that players are exposed to, particularly in training camp, because they're practicing twice a day, you're hitting, you know, even if you're not full on tackling, like we said earlier, you can't reduce all the hits, they're still hitting. And they have shown that there are some kind of short-term cognitive impairments that can be experienced there. So while we were excited, it's not really a get-out-of-jail-free. It's Yeah, so how, how long after the the season did you guys do these executive function tests just out of curiosity yeah so the executive function tests i think their last game was on a friday or saturday and we started the executive function test the next tuesday or wednesday or something okay so we tried to go as soon as possible yeah okay Mm. so you're looking for a a fairly quick deterioration then essentially yeah if you are looking hoping for something but i shouldn't say this is after having played like a bunch of games right yeah so our population was exposed to 27 contact practices in nine games. Granted, not every player attended every practice and game, but that was the maximum amount of exposures. Okay. And how long was their season? They started in April. Early April, they started contact practices, and the last game would have been July 3rd or 4th, so first week of July. So it's a couple solid months. Okay. And that's a relatively short season. Hmm. I mean, I like how it's like a natural experiment. They're doing it anyway. You just sort of... (laughs) Exactly. We slapped a sensor in their helmet, monitored the impacts they took, kind of borrowed them for five minutes at a time before and after the season. So we were really getting in there. So the actual, like, um, I mean, they're experimenting on themselves to be... (laughs) They're they're doing it themselves. You're just going to go and observe. So 
my question is how how did you measure what you're measuring? Yeah, so there's a Canadian company called GeForce Tracker, and they've come out with a uh, measurement device that can measure linear accelerations, rotational velocities, and it records the number of impacts that not even football players, anybody receives. So what we did, it's probably the size of a domino. We took all the players' helmets, removed the liner of the padding, and then in between the pads that were already in the helmet, we just fastened it to the shell. So it was within the normal spaces within the helmet's padding, so it didn't interfere with the protection. And then we just monitored it. It came right to a laptop. We had to obviously charge the devices and stuff like that, but it was relatively painless for the players. They didn't even know they were there. Mm-hmm. So so this is measuring, like, what what impacts did they receive? Yes. Uh, during during this season of all these games. Yep. Um, and then and then at the end you wanted to determine executive function. So Correct. so kind of what is executive function and how did you measure that? So executive function, it's it's not the easiest cognitive thing to describe. Essentially, it's your ability to plan and execute goal oriented behavior. So in a normal day, we think I want to you know make my lunch and I want to eat lunch. Somebody with a really bad executive functioning impairment could know that they want to do that and just not really know where to start, right? Like they can't execute and create goals and decide that they want to start Mm -hmm. doing something. So we measured that using something called an anti-saccade. And it's essentially, and it's not a test of their eyes, but it's an eye movement test. So the participants would stare directly ahead of them and we would flash a light to either the left or the right. A prosecade would be them directing their eyes at the light that's flashed. That's a natural reflex, right? When something in your visual field lights up, we want to look at it. So that's just a natural thing that your brain does. An anti-saccade is the opposite. So the participants were instructed, we're going to flash a light to either the left or the right. What we want you to do is look the opposite direction. So let's say they're staring straight ahead and a light flashes to their left. They were instructed to look to the right. So that inhibits the natural reflex to look at the light. So they have to be able to say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to look the opposite direction. So it's the inhibition part of executive function and the generation of a saccade in the mere symmetrical direction. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that shows, I mean, the ability to inhibit the natural reaction is yes. showing that they're like, they're, that's some sort of planning and that that, that goes into that definition yep. that, you, that you put for uh, executive function. Correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of impulsivity. Does this not relate? So impulsivity is an interesting one, right? Because there's so many facets of it. Are you an impulsive eater or are you an impulsive reaction? Mm. The part of executive function that directly applies to anticipates is the inhibition, right? So it's your ability to inhibit that reflex mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So how it would translate to everyday behaviors and stuff, that's interesting. I'm not sure just exactly where the line of executive function plays into the mm-hmm. inhibition of certain behaviors. Has this test been used by other people and to uh, judge executive function, and does it do it well? Is there a way to even judge that? Yeah, it has been used quite often, I think. I don't want to throw out a year there, but at least since the 60s and 70s, people have okay. been using it to describe executive function. And it's been used in subsets of athletes, too, of all different kinds as well, particularly at Western They've been using it. Hmm. So um, so you're measuring this in, in kids. Like, how, how old are they? So it was kids between the age of 12 and 14. So they would have been grade 7, 8, just before high school. How many? How big was your, your sample size? Like, how many people were actually a part of it? Yeah, so we measured impacts in 50 athletes, and that was just collecting the head impact data 
because obviously if you want to draw a correlation, you need to understand the grander, I guess, what's happening. If you want to study a population, you need to know the impacts. Of those 50, we had 28 do pre- and post-season cicade testing that we analyzed. Yeah, not bad. I mean, for, for a human study, that's good. That's pretty good numbers. Yeah, we were pretty happy that virtually all of the players were willing to have an accelerometer in their helmet. That was huge for us. How many of them were starters? So the interesting thing with... <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I don't, don't know. Play, don't play football. That's The interesting thing about youth football, so how many are starters is essentially how many saw frequent playing time and were out there on the field. Because during yeah. games, right? Oh, okay. In Canadian football, there's 12 people on at a time. And with a team of 50, you know, that leaves some people out. But the interesting thing with youth sports is there's not necessarily a clear-cut line of starters and not starters right? Obviously in a professional yeah. league or something, you have the best player is going to play. The starting quarterback is a starting quarterback. Mm-hmm. So with kids, they're kind of rotating in and out a lot more. So it was really hard to draw a distinction with starters. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, uh, so I guess, uh, one question would be, it's novel to do a kind of study like this, uh, with kids. And you, I think, uh, highlighted the importance of doing this because of course sure. it's going to be more impactful on, on the, on the kids, right? You, mm-hmm. You want to <laughs> kind of want to stop them from doing damage during development. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so the question is, have you has anyone done an analogous study in adults for uh, bef- like ever before? So you can say like we know a similar kind of study would would garner this kind of result yeah. when we see it in adults. Let's see if it holds true in kids or is it completely novel? So it has been done in adults before. It's been done at Western with the varsity football team before. And interestingly, it was done, one study that really sticks out to me because they did executive function in essentially an age match population of American football. But for those that understand the nuances of football, Canadian rules and American rules are different. So we were the first Canadian study to even collect head impacts in youth football players, let alone measure the potential harms of them hmm. well all right well i mean uh it's clearly clearly your work is warranted like we need to know this I information agree. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Has, has anybody uh, looked at more long term because this is a pretty short term specifically yes. with children because they're going to grow up mm-hmm. as well right so there could be potential defects in their development right yes unfortunately it's a relatively newer field and when i say relatively newer field a lot of longitudinal studies that you would want to see really what exposure did they have and how did they end up developing neurocognitively, that can take 30 to 40 years. Yeah. Like the big issue that people are talking about now is CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And that's the big, you know, elephant in the room when it comes to repetitive head impacts. But that, that was like the, was that the concussion movie? Exactly. Yeah. yeah okay. With Will Smith. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That one doesn't, it can develop young. But to understand the full impact of it, that can be 40s, 50s, and these kids are 12 years old, right? So I guess short answer to a long answer I just gave you, no, no one's really had enough time to look at exposures in youth through high school, even to college pro, and then see how they are 30 years down the line. So maybe can we get into, do you have any idea, whether speculation or, you know, founded on literature, as to like the mechanism one might see of cognitive changes on the short-term level mm-hmm. during development. One thing that's absolutely terrifying is that there was a case of an American athlete who developed CTE and he was in high school. Whoa. 
Okay, early so the signs. So the CTE thing isn't really just an aging thing. So I'm not. I like. I can't offer an exact uh, <laughs> neurological <laughs> definition of how CTE comes about and all of that. But you know, when you see somebody who in high school, early college, is showing signs of early CTE development. Unfortunately, it can only be reliably diagnosed right now post-mortem. So examining in an autopsy, seeing a brain that's showing signs of it at such a young age is definitely terrifying. Mm. This actually leads into my next question. So in the NFL, they have the what's called the concussion protocol now. Correct, yeah. And so what I'm kind of curious is, is this, um, I think you called it anti-saccade? Mm-hmm. Is that test used in the concussion protocol to judge their their athletes to see if they have a concussion or if they're just not acting not normal? So the concussion protocol that the NFL uses um, is, as the name implies, obviously to just diagnose for an acute yeah. concussion, right? Like okay. a player comes off, they have uh, scat verbal scores that they can do, stuff like that, that would be mm-hmm. more indicative. An anti-saccade, they're working on getting it to be a normal sideline tool. Um, whether it's used to diagnose actual concussion, I haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. But Could they potentially use it maybe just not even in like the middle of a game when they've been hit, like had a hard hit? Maybe just like throughout the season they could do that instead to maybe see if they have any of these uh, neurological damages that you can see. So, yeah, I mean, if you wanted to measure executive function in real time and, I guess, see how it's affected regularly, you could. The fragile thing about anti-saccades is how they're susceptible to the effects of physical activity. So even 10-minute bouts of physical activity have been shown to increase, or sorry, improve reaction times in the anti-saccade task. So it's kind of sensitive to that, right? As athletes, you're going to be exercising all the time and improving your physical fitness and even improve physical fitness has been shown to improve executive functioning scores on these tests. So it is kind of a difficult nuance to say, could you use it to diagnose? I think no right now, but it obviously offers some kind of insight, which is good. So how do you know that the kids that you got just didn't get into better shape by the end of the season? (laughs) Unfortunately, it's hard to tell with something like that, right? Especially when they're at such a young age. I mean, you never know if they were running around at recess all day that day or... So do you, you don't have do you have a control group or is it we just... did not for the study no okay but I guess this is like you said this is like a like brand new especially when it comes to Canadian football mm-hmm. so yeah. this is kind of like a like a preliminary study yeah it's exploratory I mean half of the arm of the study was to just understand the impacts that these kids are exposed to right biomechanics isn't the only way to look into these impacts but it's a very popular way you can quantify. You know, how hard was that hit? How many hits were they taking? So that's something we're really excited about is being the first to quantify youth Canadian football. So that's what the uh, little, uh, what did you call it, G4? Uh, GFT G- is the short acronym, G-Force Tracker. G-Force Tracker. Yeah. Or did they, like, sponsor your your thing, or is that, like, a company that's, like, we want we want people to wear these so we can, like, get information, and they, did they hook, you, hook you up with them? Yeah, Western and GFT have been partners i couldn't give you an exact time but i know at least five or six years now they've been amazing supplying the devices and we've been working together right they want to obviously see how their devices work in real time and they've even progressed it to the point where there's an app that the uh owner of the device can download and in real time see what's happening to their device yeah very cool stuff (laughs) you go on the sidelines you're like wow that felt tough 
whoa, that actually was tough. Yeah. I'm looking at my app and it's saying like red, flashing red alert. Exactly. <laughs> they can even set a threshold that would set an alarm off. So let's say you want to, you know, every hit over 150 G, they can trigger an alarm that will send a notification to the phone or the device can start beeping if you want it to. Or the kid's mom. <laughs> yeah, mom send it right to in. the kid's mom. Yeah, yeah. That's the hard part, right? Biomechanics and concussion have a tricky relationship. For a long time, people were trying to say any hit over you know, a certain threshold can cause a concussion, and they were really trying to find that threshold. But the reality is the brain is just so different between different people. So we, during the study, tried to encourage, don't read too much into the numbers. I actually tried not to let a player know any of the numbers of their hits. They would run over, what was that, what was that? I didn't want to tell them because if the number sounds high, they'd be like, oh, well, I must have a concussion, and they'll run off, tell the coach. And it's like, no, 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 no. The relationship between the impact biomechanics and the severity of the head impact, like, concussive or symptom wise it the relationships is not known and it's almost fair to say that it doesn't not doesn't exist but you just can't tell and if you did that during your study it would be a confound so they might go off and be like well that was too hard i gotta take it easy next time or another kid might turn around and be like i want to beat that i want to beat that (laughs) now they yeah you see it a lot people like who hit the hardest this year tell us who had the hardest hit and especially in a sport like football where uh, bravado exists yeah, out of it, right? You want to be the toughest person on the field. So. Oh, man. You probably got that all the time. Probably slipping you 20s. So, like, yeah, so uh, <laughs> give me that info, to, right? Add 100, <laughs> add 100 Gs to that hit. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so is there any, like, scientific merit to potentially put these GFTs, G-Force trackers, into pretty much, like, any every helmet? Not, so, just to measure, like, the levels they're getting hit um, and see if maybe is there any, like, potentially down the road could we know? Like, A, you get hit too much or there's just too much force on your brain. You know, you should take a step. You could take a take a play off or something. I hope one day. I think that would be amazing if they could come up with a list of risk factors and say, if you tick all these boxes, you are vulnerable now. You know, if you hit your head 100 times and then you get a huge hit, that's the vulnerability. I think that would be amazing. And I don't want people to stop looking for that. I think that should be the end goal. But... Hmm. Cool. Okay. Well, I mean, it's it's good to know that there's uh, this is your research is like well framed. It's like uh, we know what we're doing and why we're doing it and where those results are going to go. So it's like uh, kind of a um, in a way uh, humanitarian effort as well. <laughs> I like the way you worded that. That <laughs> yeah. makes me feel really good. Okay. Good. Well, I I, I uh, applaud <laughs> your work. Um. Uh, so we're just uh, we don't have too much time here left. Yeah. So maybe just for the end. Can you um, tell anybody who wanted to find out a little bit more about your work and see what you're up to, uh, where can they find you on the interwebs? So a really good resource that our lab uh, works alongside a lot is the Concussion Legacy Foundation. So if you're interested in hearing about concussion research, subconcussive research, anything along that nature, Concussion Legacy Foundation, you can find them on Facebook, Instagram. They have a website, www.concussionfoundation.ca. There's a lot of awesome uh, information on there. And to people that are interested in getting involved, there's a lot of volunteer opportunities. So I would definitely encourage them to check it out. Cool. Okay. And with that, we're going we're gonna to end the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, this has been GradCast, the official podcast and radio show for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Um, I've been your host, Ariel Frame, co-host Greg Robinson, and our guest today was Justin Smith. Um, if you want to come on the show and be a guest, uh, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. 
And uh, I think we still have some a couple spots left to be a host as well. So if you're interested, email us there as well. Um, if you are, if you I mean if you're listening to this on the radio, then you'll know we're on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM, 6 p.m. every Tuesday. So go, you can listen to us there. If you're not so keen on the radio and you just want to find stuff on the internet, well, we're on the internet all over the place at gradcast.ca, at gradcast radio, on. Twitter, on Instagram, with links all over there to, to, to listen to it. Um, and even for those uh, people into Spotify nowadays, we got a Spotify account. It's all up there. And uh, your regular podcast, any podcast app, you open it up, type in Gradcast, look for your purple logo. We'll be there. You can listen to us. And uh, that's it for the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.